0: Our sermon today is taken from John nine, verse eight to forty-one. This is the word of God. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, "Is this not the man who used to sit and beg?" Some said, "It is he." Others said, "No, but he is like him." He kept saying, "I am the man." So they said to him, "Then how were your eyes opened?" He answered, The man called Jesus, made mud, and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I wash and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? since he has opened your eyes. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind. But how he now see, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to... Hear it again. Do you also want to become his disciples? And they revile him, saying, You are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. This, the man answered, Why this is an amazing thing? You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, We see, your guilt remains. Thus is the Lord.
1: Amen. Let's pray. father we were once in the dark we were once left to our own devices pursuing things that were unworthy pursuing things lord god that did not satisfy pursuing things lord that led us to our own doom and destruction but father in your grace you looked upon us with desire you looked upon us with pity and you sent your son the only light of the world and though we tried to overcome him as the darkness lord god you instead overcame us you gave us sight true sight so we might see the kingdom of god so father help us today lord god because the words of man cannot change any heart and nor can the wisdom or eloquence of man but rather your spirit is necessary for us to be completely transformed so that we might be witnesses to who you are help us now in our weakness and our feebleness pretty things in jesus precious name amen Friends, we're going to be here in John chapter 9, verses 8 to 41. Just a reminder, again, um, some themes in the Gospel of John that are pertinent to this particular part of the text. Um, John is about the darkness trying to overcome the light, that there is no distinction in the world, that everyone has been walking in darkness and in sin, and there's only a singular light of the world, that is Jesus himself who came from above. And Jesus came into the world, and the darkness tried to overcome him, And they did for a moment, that led up to the cross. But ultimately, the light overcomes the darkness instead. The light restores sight to the darkness. And so with the theme of the light and the dark, there's also the theme of blindness and sight. The true light of the world, in other words, gives us not merely physical sight, but a true sight. In uh, John 3, verse 3, Jesus said to Nicodemus that no one can see the kingdom of God unless that person was born again born of water and spirit. In other words, no one could see the deeper realities of the world, the deeper cosmic realities of God, of sin, of the spirit of righteousness, were it not for the spirit himself who gives us that true sight. In other words, in the Gospel of John, there is a deeper sight that is more important than physical sight. And then there's a deeper blindness, more serious than than physical blindness. And the true light of the world came so that we might have sight so we could see reality more clearly and so this is exactly um, what happened in verses 1 to 7 as we saw last week this man was born blind and Jesus healed him so that the works of God might be displayed it was a blessed fall as we discussed last week and as a result of this healing this man was sent he was washed he was cleansed he was forgiven in other words and he was given a kind of sight that transformed him entirely and it doesn't free him from all his troubles. We're going to see that as a result of this miracle, five conversations happen. Five conversations happen that tested the limits of this man's faith, that tested his perseverance. And these five, these, these five conversations showcased the kind of transformation that true sight has, uh, has, has, has been given to this blind man. And so... By the end of this conversation by the end of these five uh, dialogues we see jesus say this in verses 38 to 41 he says for judgment i came to the world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind and some of the pharisees near him heard these things and said to him are we also blind jesus said to them if you were blind you would have no guilt but now that you say we see your guilt remains in other words Again, Jesus is emphasizing here a a kind of reversal. You see, the blind man, though he was blind and now he's given true sight, he's not merely given physical sight. He's given a sight, a spiritual sight that sees to reality. And the irony is the people around him who were not born blind were stuck in darkness and true blindness, a kind of blindness that blinds them to their own guilt a kind of darkness that blinds them, that they are in the dark, and a kind of blindness that makes them think that they have no need of a savior. They saw themselves as righteous. They saw themselves as bearing no guilt. And this is a truly deadly kind of blindness. And that's the result of this. And in these dialogues, we're going to see this interplay of, again, the the, true, uh, true, the the man with true sight and the people who are blind, and the reversal of that revealing that those who are seeing are not really seeing and the one that was blind had now become truly the one that sees there are three points to uh today's sermon and they're couched in these five dialogues in verses 8 to 12 um, the healed man uh, has a conversation with his neighbors in verses 13 and 17 the pharisees uh interrogate this healed man whether asking whether or not this miracle truly happened and verses 18 to 23 the pharisees continue to not believe this blind man and instead called the parents of this blind man Uh, interrogating him was this man really born blind and after the, the parents basically abandoned this blind man to himself verses 24 to 34 the pharisees called the blind man or the healed man a second time interrogating him again and all this time jesus was absent but somehow in the last dialogue verses 35 to 41 jesus finds and hears this healed man after all of this turmoil so within these five dialogues, there are three points for today's sermon. First is the witness of Christian transformation. Second, the consistency of Christian transformation. And third, the power behind Christian transformation. First then, the witness of Christian transformation. Notice here verses 8 to 9. Look at what the neighbor said to the, to the blind man who has now just been healed. Look at what the neighbor say. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said it is he. Others said, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I am the man. Notice before the neighbors asked anything else about the sight of the blind man that has been restored, the first questions that came up to the neighbor's head was not the sight in itself. The first question was, wasn't this the person that used to sit and beg? Look at him now, walking around, not begging, not just sitting down, not passive. In other words, there's something about his characteristics, something about his person that was just utterly different. They failed to recognize him. And this is what caused him to ask this man, what happened to you? In other words, there's something about being born again that causes us to be utterly transformed such that people around us, people that used to know us, notice these are neighbors, right? These are his peers. These are people that lived around him, people who knew him from birth and people who knew his parents. They knew what he was like. There's a kind of rebirth that the Bible talks about that when it happens to you, it changes fundamentally who you are. It restructures you from the inside out, right? Jesus says that If you have drank from the living water, out of your own heart will flow rivers of living water. There's a kind of transformation, in other words, that causes people around you to be perplexed about who you are. They recognize you somewhat, but there's something fundamentally different. Your your loves are changed. Your behavior has changed. Your your desires are transformed. In other words, you see things utterly differently, and people are confused. This is the person that I used to know. And, And this is exactly what causes people to ask us, what happened to you, right? What happened to you that you are so utterly different now? And I talked about the rebirth uh, a few months ago, and I talked about it as being not primarily a decision, but a, an event that God does to you underneath the decisions. Just as when you woke up this morning, you didn't decide to wake up, right? An alarm clock woke you up, or your kids woke you up maybe, and you woke up. And because you were woken up outside of yourself... You now begin to make new decisions. And in the same way, the Bible talks about a kind of rebirth born again from the Spirit that causes you to see, and it underlies all of your decisions, underneath all your decisions, and on the basis of which you do all things. And because of this rebirth, people around you are perplexed and will start asking us questions. What happened to you? Who who did you meet? Who did you encounter? What happened to you that you can be transformed in such a way where I barely recognize you now there's an apocryphal story about um one of the church fathers of the christian church i don't know whether or not it's completely accurate i'd have to look it up a bit more closely but people talk about it all the time it's about um the church father saint augustine he was a fourth century church father one of the most influential theologians of the christian church augustine was um quite uh A troubled young man before he was a christian he was a rhetorician he was a professor in other words and not only that he was also a sexual addict before um he became a christian he struggled with all of his lives even after um he became a christian and one uh, he was he was in such a problematic state that before he was a christian he had numerous concubines in several different parts of um uh, the cities and so one time augustine after had becoming a Christian for several years, came to a particular part of the town where he met someone that he used to have a, a, a sexual relationship with for a long period of time. And this woman came up to him and said, Augustine, Augustine, it is me. And Augustine was warm, he was kind, he was appreciative, but did not respond. And this woman said, Augustine, is that you? It is me, and Augustine looked back at her and says, "I know it's you, but it's not I." And he walked away. In other words, there was something about Augustine that was utterly different to this woman. That when she met him again, Augustine seemed to be completely different, such that this woman was left wondering what exactly happened to him, what happened to him that he was transformed in this way, and exactly. The neighbors saw this blind man, a man who used to sit and beg passively. And by the end of the four dialogues, what was he doing? Amidst the religious authorities under the threat of condemnation being kicked out of the synagogues, excommunication, treated as a sinner destined for hell, in other words, he was able to give them a theological monologue that rebuked them to the core. No wonder the neighbors were wondering, isn't this the man? that he used to sit and beg. What happened to him? And they start asking him the questions. And this is, the, see, the behavior is what sets off the, the questioning that came afterwards. The behavior, in other words, set off the dialogues came afterwards. What happened to him? They're, they're starting to incur. Did a miracle really happen? Who did he meet? And who is this Jesus figure that is behind this transformation, right? And notice, what does he say? He says it very consistently when they ask him, how were your eyes open? Look at verse 11. He says, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. This little testimony that he gives here in verse 11, he says, I went and washed and I received my sight. It's consistent throughout. In other words, there's a singular testimony that underlies behind every Christian transformation. He repeats this again in verse 15. He says, um, amidst the Pharisees, this time no longer amidst his neighbors. In other words, amidst the religious authorities. He says what? He put mud on my eyes, and I wash, and I see. He repeats the same testimony. And again, later on in verse uh, 25. He says, whether he's a sinner, I do not know. When he was pressed by the Pharisees a second time, one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. This is uh, one of the bases for the lyrics to that hymn, Amazing Grace. You know, there's, it's an amazing hymn. And it's sang all these decades, over and over again, repeated. and never gets old. You know why? Because this hymn is every Christian's spiritual biography. You know that if you're a Christian here, this is the exact same words that you can say before anyone? You were blind, but now you see. See, if we grasp the meaning of the Gospel of John, right, you might be thinking, Gray, I did not receive a miracle like this blind man. I wasn't blind from birth. I didn't meet Jesus. I wasn't anointed by my eyes, and I was not sent to some fountain come away seeing Friends, you were. You were. We were born dead and blind in sin. Friends, left to ourselves. We did not care about this God of the universe. We did not care that we spurned Him. We did not care that, 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 that there was an authority over us. We did not care that we had to have fellowship with Him. You know, most people come to church, most people seek God at first, not because they love God, not because they want to get to know Him. They come to church, first of all. They come to pray, first of all, because they're fearful of hell. Or they're seeking to establish their own righteousness. They're treating church as a point system. Either way, friends, if you are a Christian here today, this is your testimony. I was blind but now i see from birth i was <laughs> davidson in psalm 51 i was born in utter iniquity in my mother's womb i was weaned in sin friends there's a deeper blindness and i hope you're seeing this is a deeper blindness that blinded you to your own guilt blinded you to your own self-righteousness and blinded you to your need for a savior and before every audience before every person You have a singular testimony that you are to keep consistent. You were blind and now you see. You see, friends, it doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian church. It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian family. It doesn't matter what your past was or what your conversion experience was like. It doesn't matter if you don't even remember the last time you were not a Christian. What mattered ultimately is a singular testimony of the grace of God that removed your blindness and gave you true sight. This is the testimony in other words, of the Christian's transformation. It's not the miracle that mattered. It is the deeper miracle of the fact that you've been given true sight that mattered, right? Let's move on to the second point. Look at what it says here. Um, the second point is the consistency of Christian transformation. Look, notice that he kept his testimony and poised throughout, no matter the different audiences here. He kept his testimony through his peers in the first dialogue among his neighbors in other words and with the neighbors remember at this point friends that the jews were already trying to apprehend jesus were trying to catch him so that they might kill him this was the beginning of chapter 7 they started to plot against him starting to try to kill him bring him to the authorities and of course the jews started to become afraid of the religious authorities because they know that anyone associated with this man jesus might be put to death too and this is why by verse 13 these neighbors brought this man amidst the religious authorities, because they're going to put him under trial. But amidst these trials, amidst his peers or these religious authorities, there was no distinction made in his testimony. He kept his poise and just merely repeated himself. Not merely that, in verses 18 to 23, his parents abandoned him. His parents, fearful of the Pharisees, said, He's of age. You don't need to ask us about about any of this. He's of legal age. You can ask him these formal questions. We don't don't want anything to do with this. Imagine again the scenario, right? You would think that this blind man who would not have been healed, this physical miracle right before their eyes, would have caused people, including his parents, to have rejoiced. Instead, The unbelief around him used it as an opportunity, again, to find Jesus, to try to kill him. But again, in the midst of his peers, in the midst of increasing pressure and persecution, in the midst of the abandonment of his parents, and the interrogation, finally, of the Pharisees in the fourth dialogue, this man kept his faith. He persevered. He stuck to his guns. He, He kept the same testimony over and over again. I was blind, and now I see I don't know whether this Jesus person was a sinner. I don't know what exactly happened. All I know, friends, is I was blind, but now I see. In the midst of everything, he kept his testimony. And this is what, friends, makes Jesus utterly beautiful in your life. It is not in the moments of prosperity where you could claim Jesus to be your Lord that makes him beautiful in your life. but It is in the midst of all these trials and persecution and abandonment. What do you turn to? Who do people see that you ultimately turn to? Do you turn to other things other than God? Or do you finally say, no matter what happens, whether it is the abandonment of my parents, the persecution of my peers, the suspicion of my religious friends or the authorities, even if I were not to receive any praise from man, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, God is enough. God is enough. There's a consistency of Christian transformation. How do you know, friends, that you've been truly transformed by the gospel? Can you go amidst the pressures of daily life and say, even amidst the pain, even amidst the abandonment, even amidst the sorrow, you continue to say, I will turn to my Savior and my God. He is enough. That shows whether or not you've been truly transformed. That shows the consistency. Of your faith and this friends by the way just a side note about the unbelief of these um Pharisees right this is not merely abandonment or uh, religious persecution friends this is irrational persecution right the Pharisees in the um, second and fourth dialogue here to the blind man to the healed man was asking him questions that's been addressed by Jesus long before this they were asking him if Jesus was truly a prophet why does he heal on a Sabbath he's a sinner right if jesus is truly a sinner then how could he do a miracle then you must be lying all right they, they're accusing him of these things and so they brought his parents you must be lying he can't be truly a miracle worker he's breaking the sabbath but by this time in chapter 9 if you've been reading the gospel of john you've been hearing the series right you've seen miracle after miracle jesus healing a paralytic jesus bringing bread and fish and feeding five thousand uh, families right jesus healing this blind man, Jesus refuting all of the uh, refutations of the Pharisees. Yet, all the physical evidences, all the argumentation that Jesus produces leads not to them being convinced, leads them further instead to deeper blindness, deeper resistance, deeper shirking of the evidence, and deeper trying to find reasons against Jesus. All right, there's a pretty stark um, scenario of this. Uh, So, so, Again, this is pressure that's significantly irrational, right? People say nowadays, right, that to look at religion, to look at philosophy, in other words, you, you just, to live life well, you need to reason objectively. You need to just use your reason and just be objective about it. But texts like this show that we are never truly neutral. We're never really truly Uh, religiously capable of being objective because this is about the most important things in life. There's a stark example of this on BuzzFeed video as I was uh, scrolling through Facebook uh, uh, as I was distracting myself from sermon writing. um, I was scrolling through Facebook and there's a BuzzFeed video and BuzzFeed apparently sends investigators to look at certain strange phenomena and the BuzzFeed uh, video makers found a, a flat earth society conference. And this Flat Earth Society conference um, had enough money to rent a really nice hotel and establish this conference that hundreds of people showed up. And this BuzzFeed op- um, um, reporter came amidst of them and attended this conference and interviewed a bunch of these people. And he says, guys, these are not nutcases for the most part. There was one guy who tried to shoot himself in a rocket, yes. But aside from that guy, he said, these are not you know nutcases. They were normal people eating normal food. Right, talking normally, decent people, right? But they really did believe that the earth was flat, and this is kind of incredulous to us. I see this, the, the 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 smirks here. This is kind of incredulous to us. But but he, he asked as he as he asked these questions, what it is that first got them to be convinced? He saw that each and every single one of them, before they were flat earth theorists, were already conspiracy theorists. In other words, before they had came to believe in a flat earth, they already believed things like the Holocaust wasn't real, that the internet was controlled by the government to control you, right? Which is ironic because most of these people became flat earthers through a YouTube video. And third, right? Um, uh, they, they also believe things like um, people never landed on the moon, that all the outer space imageries that we see are merely photoshopped, right? And so... After every interview, the reporter kept coming, up, kept coming up with evidences again and again and again. Hey, look at this image. Look at this scientific article. Listen to what NASA is saying. And you know what they kept saying? See, that just proved my point, man. This is how they get you. This is how the government controls your brains. You see, they, they're controlling the internet. They're controlling everything. In other words, every evidence that you put that was intended to be against their belief became sucked up and became for their belief. And instead, instead of seeing uh, that earth really wasn't flat, they probed in deeper and deeper. Look at how the government has deceived you, man. Oh, you work for BuzzFeed. That's even worse. All right? Look at how the government has deceived you. See, friends, we're not neutral with the way we use our reasoning. Our reasoning is deeply controlled by the motives of the heart, right? There's no such thing as a robotic autonomous reason that just reasons according to some universal standard all the time. We know deep inside that our deepest motivations control how we reason about the world. There's also another analogy that gets at this pretty starkly. Uh, The Keller uses this analogy a lot actually, it's kind of a bit of a joke as well. There's a man, let's say, let's call him Jack, this man really believed that he was a corpse This man believed that he was a corpse and he was walking around saying, yeah, I've been dead for a long time. I've been dead for a long time, you know, I I, I guess this is how it feels to be dead. And you're Jack's friend and you think, poor Jack, he's kind of crazy. I'm going to bring him to a few doctors and I'm going to put all the research findings in front of him and I'm going to talk to him every day and I'm going to tell Jack, Jack, do you know that if you're truly a corpse, Jack, um, you, you won't bleed. Jack said, what do you mean? Well, look at all the research findings, Jack. And you went through all the material, you went through all the textbooks, all the research findings. Jack, if you were a corpse, you would not bleed. This is all what the empirical evidence shows us. Because corpses don't bleed, because your heart's not beating, because you have a dead body, right? Jack said, okay, I'm convinced. All right, Jack, if you're convinced that corpses don't bleed, let's cut you right now. Let's cut you. Let's take this knife. Don't worry, it'll just be a moment, in fact, if you're a corpse, you won't hurt anyway so let's let's cut you a little bit so th- so Jack says, all right, let's do it. So he cut himself, and lo and behold, what happened? He started bleeding all right, and now you're going to ask yourself and you're going to ask Jack right, See Jack, you still believe you're a corpse, you're bleeding. What does this mean? Jack said, huh, Well, this is peculiar. I guess corpses bleed after all you see what's this what's the point of this story, friends. You're never an objective observer in the midst of evidence. You're motivated. It depends where you're starting from. It depends what, you, what your entire worldview is, right? No matter what happens, in other words, to these Pharisees, no, no matter what, how many evidences you give them, no matter how many arguments that you erect against them, no matter how many refutations you pull up, no matter how many disputations you win, if you are dark in blindness and sin, you will always find reasons against faith. And the same with any other worldview, Christians do it too. I'm not saying that, that Christians are not um, vulnerable from this. We are. But just be aware of that. These Pharisees are utterly blind. It's this kind of blindness that Jesus is talking about. It's a blindness deeper than real blindness. It's a blindness that blinds you from reason, from evidence. It's a blindness that says, I'm always in the right, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to suppress all truth and any kind of evidences and make it again turn from my side I don't know about you, but if you were the blind man, if you were Jesus at this point, if you were healed, you would be in utter frustration. By the fourth dialogue, the the Pharisees have called upon him to testify. The neighbors have have, have testified. They brought him, right? The parents had testified. The parents had abandoned. We know that he was born blind. And the Pharisees continued still. Look at what they forced the blind man to do. This is in verse uh, 24. Give glory to God. In other words, if you're really healed, give glory to God. But we know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. All right, I couldn't deny that you weren't lying. In other words, your parents testified that you were born blind, but now you're seeing. We can't deny this. Whatever. Still now, give glory to not to this Jesus person, because we can't attribute this to Him. That would be the last thing we want. Join us, in other words, in this blasphemy. Give glory to God. This man is a sinner. And this is where he says, in verse 25, the healed man, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Friends, keep going. You might be in the midst, I don't know what season of life you're in right now, whether it be in the face of of a difficulty, whether it be maybe abandonment, feeling alienation from your family, feeling alienation within your family, or even alienation within society. But what this text insists upon is that Christian transformation gives you a kind of consistency, a kind of peace that causes you, even in the midst of Um, abandonment and even in the midst of irrational questioning even questions that you don't know what the answers to are you might meet people who are way smarter than you atheists who have all the arguments um, all kinds of uh, unbelieving worldviews that that have all the, the intellectual argumentation against you and you might feel pressured i don't know any of the answers to that i don't have a phd i don't have all the all the arguments here's what you do have you have a savior you have a testimony you can say with this blind man I don't know all the answers I can't get rid of the suppression I cannot get rid of of, of the darkness and the blindness that suppresses all this I, I don't even understand it but you can keep going and you can merely say the answer to these questions I don't know all I know I was blind but now I see You see counselor david paulson he argued that what matters in your growth what matters in your christian life is not the speed with which you grow it's not the speed with which you're going you might be facing a season of difficulty or drought but you should keep going anyway what matters in other words it's not the speed of your growth or the speed of your walking it is the direction of your walking and in the midst of this do you keep walking even in the midst of all of these difficult questions do you keep walking and say lord i don't know what's going on i don't know all the answers i'm going to keep walking anyway i know what happened to me reflect upon your conversion i know what happened to me is is is, is amazing and it's miraculous i know that you hold my future i'm going to keep going and you'll grow so the consistency of christian transformation is not merely is that uh, this, 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 this poise and this anchor that causes you to be sustained through irrationality, through questions you don't know? It is also, friends, a consistency of growth. Notice what happens to this blind man. He uh, says about Jesus uh, four things, at least, that we can detect from this text. And in each of these four ways that he talks about Jesus, we see a peculiar kind of growth, right? he comes away at first in verse 11. Look at what he says in verse 11 again. He says, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. And I washed and, and I was given my sight, right? In other words, he called Jesus merely a man. Look, I don't know what happened. I know that there's a man named Jesus and I know that he healed me. That's all I know. And then in verse 17, when the Pharisees ask him a question, he ultimately says, he is a prophet, all right? He's not merely a man anymore. Uh, I know he's a man that could heal. I don't know what that means, but, but after probing a little bit deeper, after sustaining himself in, the, in, in his faith and his testimony, he walked through all these trials, and then he, he grew in understanding. He's not merely a man anymore. In verse 17, he's a prophet. And look at what he says in verse 27 to 28. First, he's asking, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? They're still kind of probing. And notice what he says here. I have told you already look at his boldness and you would not listen why do you want to hear it again do you also want to become his disciples in other words he's claiming right there that he's not merely saying that jesus is a man he's not merely saying that jesus is a prophet he's also saying i'm now a disciple do you also want to be a disciple of jesus that jesus is not merely a prophet saying things He's also someone that you ought to follow as i'm following him as a disciple And notice by the end of these ordeals, in verse 38, after realizing who Jesus is, after Jesus comes to him, look at what he says, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped. He worshiped. Keep walking and you'll grow. And this man grew from thinking that Jesus was a mere man to thinking he was a prophet to thinking that he's someone that I should follow as a disciple. He bent the knee finally in verse 38 and says, I will worship you. You are someone worthy of not merely discipleship, but of worship. I find you as the one that I will cling to. You'll grow. God will complete what he began. God will sustain you in such a way where you'll grow in the midst of it. You won't feel it. It will will come by, and and sooner and sooner and sooner, you'll find day by day as you keep walking, you'll grow. There's a consistency to it, in other words. And this boldness is juxtaposed to his parental uh, fear, right? You'll not only grow in your doctrinal knowledge, in other words, and knowing who Jesus is, but you'll also grow in your courage and your boldness for who Jesus is. So whatever season of life you might be in, be encouraged. Some of you may have just been a Christian for several months and now you are just eating it up. Somehow you feel yourself motivated. No matter what happens, you keep saying, I'm going to live for Jesus. It doesn't matter what happens to me. I will do this for him and I will keep going. Others of you, it's been decades. And you might still be feeling doubts, you might still be feeling fear, you might still be feeling temptations and and all sorts of tribulations that cause you to wonder sometimes whether you could follow him, but keep going. No matter what season of life you're in, don't compare your speed of growth with one another's. Instead, focus on the direction with which you're growing. Focus on the direction with which you're walking and toward which you're walking. Last point, friends, the power behind transformation. How do we do this? How do you receive this kind of boldness? How do we receive a kind of boldness that says, it doesn't matter if my parents abandoned me, my family shirk me away, my peers would accuse me and bring me upon religious authority. It doesn't matter. Even if I was cast out, verse 34 says, the Pharisees argued, you were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And he cast him out of the synagogue. Treat. And by the way, this is not like today, Right? This is not like today if you get into church discipline. You could just move to a church right next door. There's another church right next door, literally in this hall. right? In today's day and age, you can merely uh, go from one church to another. One, the moment you feel uncomfortable, you could just move. There's such an easy way to get out of discipline. There's such an easy way to get out of accountability of vulnerability. You could just move churches. Not so, Not so in this period, friends. You get cast out of the synagogue, the whole town knows. All right? This is not merely a, a religious um, excommunication. This is not merely something that, that, that the Pharisees are saying, we will now from now on treat you as an unbeliever destined for hell. This also means that your social standing is completely at risk. And At this point, this blind man might have been thinking to himself, I had a better social standing when I was blind. You notice that? That, that, that when you become a Christian, things suddenly get hard for you. That things don't get easier for you instead now you don't have god as your enemy you have the whole world you have yourself as your enemy right and when god was your enemy you had a good enemy he was for you he wanted to save you now that you are god as your friend everyone else the world the flesh and the devil are against you friends he had no option at this point. He was utterly alone, abandoned by his family, abandoned by his society, abandoned by a synagogue. The one place where God would have been near had now rejected him. Where do we get this kind of power? Where do we get this kind of boldness? Friends, I've already mentioned, remember what happened to you. Remember your testimony. You were blind, but now you see. But furthermore, friends, notice that Jesus here. In verse 35 came to the blind man he finds him somehow he was absent and he somehow knew everything that had happened Jesus in other words was absent but not somehow far away or hidden Jesus was apart from the scene but Jesus remained close and he listened and he was able to know exactly what happened and came right at an opportune time. And it is no surprise that Jesus finds him here. And in John 10, John talks about the good shepherd that finds his lost sheep. See, John knew exactly what he was doing. Jesus came and found him. And having found him, do you believe in the Son of Man? And Jesus comforted him. I believe. And re- Jesus revealed himself to him, revealing not merely that Jesus found him, but also that Jesus was with him and listened to him. The whole time. And his guilt was no longer there, as he says in verse 40 and 41. Now, how can this happen? Now, that little word, friends, in verse 35, Jesus heard, is the same little word that you see in verse 31. Look at what it says in verse 31. Look at what the blind man says in his theological monologue against the Pharisees. He says, we know that God does not listen to sinners. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but instead listens to the one that does his will, right? In other words, we know for sure that God is a holy God and would not listen to someone who's wronged him, right? Calvin, a theologian uh, in a commentary, argued that, Did you know that an unbeliever's prayers would bring more condemnation upon the unbeliever? Because the unbeliever praying to God will be like a criminal coming to the judge's right hand and whispering into his ear in the middle of a trial. Don't take for granted that God hears you, right? And this is what the blind man is saying. Do you know, we know, God does not hear sinners, but Jesus heard the blind man and found him. Same little Greek word. How can this blind man who's a sinner from birth, and we know that to be true, right? We know that to be true about ourselves. How how do we, who are born in utter sin, utter darkness, now have a high priest, a true God, who listened to us in the middle of our distress and is with us along the way and will find us when we most need Him? How, in other words, can the just judge listen to the sinner? Friends, it is because the only one who does his will was not listened to by God. Do you realize that? This would be only because the only one who the true man, the true worshipper of God, the true high priest, the true prophet, the true king, at the moment where God need, was needed to listen to him most at the cross did not listen, but instead forsook him, left him to his despair. No longer at that point, friends, did Jesus call out and said, Father, Father, but instead, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Friends, Jesus was treated as the sinner and God did not listen to him so that God might listen to you today in justice. Friends, I mentioned last week that there was a philosophical objection to Christian belief typically called the problem of evil. Problem of evil states, how can there be a good and just and all-powerful God if there's so much evil and suffering in the world? But I argued last week that the one objection against a just God is not the existence of evil in the world. I argued last week that the argument against a just God is how can a just God let evil people like Jacob, like you and me, into the tent of righteousness? How can God let you in through the gate of righteousness? We could imagine so many people who used to know us, so many people like Esau, again, cry out. Why? How, Lord? How can you be a just God and let a despicable sinner like this man enter into your courts, enter into your sanctuary? Friends, deeper than the problem of evil, in other words, is what is called the problem of mercy. The problem of grace. How can a just and merciful God be gracious to utterly despicable people like you and me? The answer is found in the cross. God can be just and He can listen to sinners like you and me because He took our sin, bore it upon Himself, and was abandoned in our place. Friends, this is the power. This is why you could have been healed from your darkness. This is why you can be healed from your diseases. You can be healed from your utter, true spiritual darkness, your true, utter spiritual blindness. And you can persevere. Know and cling to this Jesus who has not listened in your place so that God might be with you through these trials. Let's pray. Father, it is an amazing um, reality that we so often are prone to forget. that you continue to be with us even in the midst of trials, even despite of our feelings, Lord God, our feelings of abandonment, our feelings of emptiness, our feelings of being lost, of being religiously, socially, and familially persecuted, Lord God. You continue to be with us no matter how we feel. Our emotions are deceitful and causing us to doubt your listening ears in the midst of our difficulty. Help us now with your Holy Spirit. Remind us, Lord God, that he was abandoned so that we might be heard. We pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.